For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So God, I pray that our hearts can begin to comprehend the truth of this, not just in our heads, but in every way possible, be convinced of how much you care for us. Use this passage, Carl's message, and cause our hearts to expand to understand your love, your care for each of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give Carl a warm welcome, okay? There's a truth in the Bible, uh, a proposition, a, a declared fact, that I find to be the most difficult. I believe it. It's hard to trust it. You see, I, I, can, I can believe something to be true, but I'm not sure I can trust the fact that I believe it's true. I, I, I do all kinds of handyman kinds of work, and I know I shut the breaker off to the disposal. I still can't put my hand in it. I mean, I know it's turned off. I know for sure it's turned off. This truth we're going to talk about, this declared fact, this proposition, I know you believe it to be true, and you, you believe it to be true especially for those around you. But it's the one that's the most difficult to believe is true for us. Not hard to believe it's true for them. That, I'll give you that. I don't have any problem with that. It's hard for me to believe it's true for me, though. What's interesting about this is that it is the one truth that without my surrender, without my trust in it, none of the other parts of the Bible really are going to be all that helpful. In fact, what will happen is I will simply become more religious. I, I, I will become better at doing the Christian thing, but farther away from experiencing what it really is to be a Christian. I think, in my own experience, that while there's plenty of issues, I believe that it is my inability to trust this truth that led to my 
almost divorcing my wife in our early years. I think it's led to my struggle with all kinds of addictive issues. I think it's led to this story that I continue to repeat, sort of the Groundhog movie experience where every day is still lunchtime in junior high, you know, sitting at the table by myself, afraid somebody's going to come sit with me, afraid somebody won't come sit with me, afraid somebody, the wrong person's going to sit with me. You know what's really fascinating? That if I can if I can begin to surrender and trust this truth, I may still have a crummy marriage. I still may be filled with fear. I, I might still have compulsive behaviors. But they won't have the scarring impact. You could probably guess what I'm going to say next. I believe the hardest thing to trust to be true for me is that God loves me. And he loves me extravagantly. I um, have you know, always been in ministry, as, as Kevin said, um, for the most part. And um, so I don't have a, I didn't have a lot of, you know, retirement or, you know, sort of putting aside for the future. And so about 20 years ago, my wife and I decided to buy a, a, a fixer upper, kind of like, you know, something out of the slumlord catalog. And, um, and this was in Denver and because I like remodeling and I like handyman kinds of work. And so I bought this house and put tons and tons and tons of time and energy and, and even some money into it. And it was going to be our rental income. Well, that same summer, my daughter, Carla, got engaged. And so she and her um, fiancé, Chris, they come to me and they uh, say, Hey, Dad. How about if we rent that house from you at a discount? And, um, uh, and you know, I'm, I am still trying to get, you know, the focus on the Family Daddy of the Year Award, so I say, okay, all right, uh, we'll, we'll, that'll be fine. And then, it, really, I think about a week or two weeks later, my, my daughter's very smooth. She's good at this stuff. She comes to me and says, hey, Daddy, would it? She calls me Daddy when she wants them. She says, Daddy, um, could we get a dog? <laughs> oh, sweetheart, I love you so much. Of course you can't. Um, <laughs> I, see, I had put in hardwood floors. And that, I don't know if you've ever done that. That's a lot of work. A lot of work. And dogs have claws. And I knew she didn't want a little, you know, dog. She wanted a big dog. And so I said, no. Um, they, they'd asked me if I would do their wedding, Chris and Carla. And it was in August. I remember that. Oh, it was such a beautiful day. And I really, I mean, I obviously, you know, in 40 years, I've done a lot of speaking and sermons and all kinds of places. 
There ain't, there's no pressure like doing your kid's wedding. Like, you mess this up, you're going to hear about it every Thanksgiving, you know? <laughs> and, um, and for some reason, I really was drawn to this passage that Kevin just read. That it, I wanted, because I believed it's so true, I believe it's so true, that if they could just grasp how extravagantly God loves them, that that would supersede all the other tips I might give them. And so, as I was getting ready, I was going to insert in, in a way to help folks understand a, a, a story of, you know, when I had extravagantly loved Carla, and then we could connect that. And I honestly couldn't think of a story. I could think of lots of stories where I was a pretty good dad, and I showed up, or I did the right thing. I did not have one story where I had demonstrated something unbelievably extravagant that was surprising to her that I had done it. And I was really sad about that. I really was sad. I called Chris and I said, hey, Chris, I'd like to talk about this dog thing. So he and I conspired. The day of the wedding comes, and it was this beautiful morning. Carla had, um, she had rented from the city of Denver this mountain meadow with a gazebo, and it was, it was just beautiful. It really was a perfect blue sky day. And, um, and so it comes my portion of this experience, the service for me to, you know, do the, the little message. And I, sh I read this passage, and then I just say to Carla, Carla, I wanted a story where I knew I had shared with you and done for you what a father should do, where I surprised you by how much I loved you. And I couldn't find one. And I'm sorry. And I would like to try today. And something like that was the cue for one of her friends who was holding this little puppy. And friend stood up and started walking, and everybody was looking, and so Carla turned to look, and when she saw that puppy, I, if, if you could have heard that shriek of absolute joy, and the tears are just, I mean, they're just, she is just slobbering, and then I start slobbering. I hadn't really thought through everything. Um, <laughs> and then she is holding the puppy. Again, white dress, didn't think through everything, but, and I'm, I'm holding my son-in-law and my daughter and the little puppy, magic, magic. The reason I tell you that story, one, is, is I want you to think better of me. Um, And if there are any, this is the honest truth, my friend Kirk, his daughter was there, and she asked her dad if everybody gets a puppy when they get married. <laughs> um, it, it, it was. In that one moment, I, I did pretty good.
But the, really, the, the story is more about my dad. My parents divorced when I was three. They, uh, they tried to get back together when I was four. My dad had, you know, been running around on mom, and I think he still probably was. But he hit her on Christmas Eve when I was four or five, I don't remember. And um, that was it. They both remarried. Um, and my parents don't, are not real good at picking life partners. Um, that wasn't their strength, <laughs> for sure. They both married people that were abusive and mean, in my perspective. And um, when I was 12, we moved from Alabama to Colorado. And then we would spend, I would have to go back for summers in Alabama and winters here in Colorado. But when I sort of left the home, I, I, I started thinking, my dad was never present at any significant moment in my life. When I graduated from high school, dad wasn't there. When I graduated from college, dad wasn't there. When I graduated from seminary, dad wasn't there. When I got married, no dad. When my babies were born, dad wasn't there. When we thought my wife might possibly die after the birth of my second child, my son Brandon, he wasn't there. When Brandon, at age nine, was diagnosed with a tumor behind his eye and in his brain, dad didn't, dad didn't come. That summer when... Dad and I would occasionally talk on the phone. I hadn't seen him for several years. Um, but he said, I'm going to be there. I want to be at the wedding, and I was so happy. I, um, I, 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 I guess I, I tell the story, and it may be hard for you to picture, but in, the, in those very moments, as I am literally speaking the words, trying to, to give to my daughter and my son-in-law this foundation of trusting the story that seems too good to be true, that God extravagantly loves us. In that same moment, I've been looking out at the, you know, a couple hundred people there, and almost intentionally going, yeah. Just like I thought. No dad. Nope. No dad. No dad. And in that moment, I came to this, finally, this amazing and what I thought would be a freeing conclusion. He will never hurt me again. I'm never, gonna, I'm never again going to expect him. And I just shut, oh, excuse me. Sorry about that. So I shut that part of my heart down. I honestly, this is the honest truth, I thought this was so brilliant. It was so brilliant, I told one of my friends about it. Isn't this brilliant? Like, like you would think I would have thought of this a long time ago. Here I am, 40-something years old, and I finally dawns on me, I don't have to keep letting him hurt me. My friend's not a real good friend, because he did not agree with me. As we know, good friends always agree. <laughs> he didn't think that sounded like such a great idea. 
I was, at that time, there was an older woman in our church, and she was mentoring me. And I shared it with her. She wasn't as wise as I thought, because she didn't think it was a good idea. In fact, this was a period of my life when I was doing some speaking, and I was going to be in Atlanta, Georgia, speaking. My dad lived in Alabama. And somehow, I don't remember all the sequence of events, but... She found out that that's what I was going to be doing, and she just said, why don't you tell your dad about these deep wounds and pains? Side note, a little, we have in our bodies, God has made us in such a way that there are parts of our bodies which will keep us alive, and we don't have to think about it. It's a non-cognitive part. I, I, I think some people say, you know, stored in this what they call the amygdala, I believe. You know, you breathe and all that. But part of our amygdala, this part I don't have to think about, are strategies to stay alive. You've heard about fight, flight, freeze. Those, those, those are stored there. You don't have to cognitively go, should I jump away from the fire? Oh, let me think about this. No, you just do. You know, you, you know how to do that. So what happens in childhood is we unknowingly begin to develop a strategy to survive. One of the strategies I needed as a child to survive was to not always tell the truth. What I mean by that is, if I said what was true, this is what happened. You hurt me when you blamed. This, this doesn't feel good, Dad, when this happens. There would, there would be a violent response to that, and I would be hurt more, either from a stepdad, stepmother, whoever. So I learned how to respond. And so, in my amygdala, I had learned that if I somehow tell the truth about my pain, I could be hurt. Now, the problem is, it's not, that's not true cognitively, but it was part of who I was. And I literally could not imagine having to do that. I can't tell you how scared I was. I was speaking there in Atlanta, and sure enough, my dad did come. I can still remember, he was a big man, 6'3", almost 400 pounds, and I could see his silhouette where I was speaking. And, um, and we'd made plans that afterwards, he would pick me up, and then we would drive to his place on the other side of, about an hour and a half away there in Alabama. That night, knowing that the following morning, he and I were going to spend the day together, sort of going to different places that we'd been to get, you know, I'd been as a child and reminiscing and talking. And I knew that I was going to have to tell my dad. And I was so afraid. I really, it was one of those, Lord, is there any other way we can do this? So the next morning, we get up and I'm driving. And he asked me to drive and he's sitting there. And we're not down the road for 10 minutes. And I look to him and I said, Dad, I've got to say something. And it's really hard for me. And I tell him that when you weren't there when Carla got married and you said you would be, it crushed me. My dad instantly just began to weep and weep and weep. He, sh he began to share with me the story of his life had been a story just of shame. 
He told me things that he had never told anybody. His experience of being raped at age 10 by his pastor. And how he believed if anybody ever found out, his father would find out, and if his dad found out, he knew for sure his dad would murder that pastor. And he was so scared to lose his dad, he never told anybody. He had always struggled with being big, and so he was a fighter. He'd boxer. He went to the army. But he always had this nagging, addictive issue. Sex, gambling, chemicals. And he said, Carl, I know I've missed everything. I've missed everything in your life. I could not bear the shame of sitting at Carla's wedding. I started telling him, we started chatting, because Dad had had several long seasons in his life where he really wanted to love and follow Jesus. And I I knew he was a Christian, for sure. And so he knew this story very well. It's probably Jesus' most famous story. I'm not going to read it all, and so I hope you can remember some of the stories called The Prodigal Son. And it's a story Jesus tells about these two boys, and the one boy who's a good boy, who does everything right, who deserves to be loved, right? And then there's the other boy, the boy who we can't even comprehend the, the sort of the cultural understanding of what he did to his dad to embarrass him, humiliate him. He, it says he ran off. He took his inheritance. You're not supposed to do that before your dad's dead. And he took that, that inheritance his dad had preserved, and it spent it on prostitutes and parties. And then he begins to feed pigs. Imagine if you know a little bit about the Jewish tradition, the Jewish law about pigs. And here's a Jewish boy feeding pigs. And he begs the guy who owns the pigs, can I have a little bit of the food? And the guy says, no, you're below pigs. Pigs are more valuable to me than you. If you die of starvation, it's not that big a deal. I want the pigs to live. Because there was a famine in the land, it said. And then the boy comes to his senses and goes, oh, I'm so stupid. All I have to do is go back to my dad and just become one of his work. I'll tell him I'm really sorry, and I will just become one of his workers, and I'll work my way back to being a good kid again. Now, the people listening to this story are going, this ain't going to work, dude. You can't do that to a dad and expect any kind of forgiveness. It's not going to ever happen. But, of course, Jesus is a person, and if you read the parables and stories of Jesus, remember there's a little clue. There's always going to be a surprise, something that is a twist, an O. Henry-style ending to these stories that nobody would have ever seen coming. And this was the ending nobody would have ever seen coming. It says literally in this story that the father was looking and waiting for the boy after all this time. And when he saw the boy a long ways off, he ran to his son and he kissed him. Now here's the important part. Because the boy does what every human would do. He begins to negotiate his forgiveness. And what he says to his father is really important. He says, Dad, let me just go to work for you. Let me earn back my dignity. 
Let me do something where I can contribute to not having this shame around me. Let me prove to you how much I, how, how worthy I would be to now be called your son. Dad says, I'm not hearing none of that. You're my boy. You were dead, now you're alive. Let, we're going to party, man. We're, they brought him the ring and the shoes, the robe. They, they, it's an amazing party. Here's the amazing part of the story. The son couldn't help at all. He, the son couldn't do something that would in any way make you think, well, he probably deserves a party now. You know what's crazy? is in this very story. The son, who was always working hard to get the dad to love him. And the dad says, I've always loved you. But because he believed he deserved to be loved, not that the father didn't love him, he could not receive or believe that the dad loved him. Because extravagant love, it's crazy. It's true. But it's hard to trust. It's so hard to trust. That next day, my dad took me to the airport, and we hugged and kissed. He thanked me. I didn't know this, but apparently he just pulled around and parked there in the airport. He called my brother. One of the things I told dad that had been so painful was he hadn't spoken to my older brother for 10 years. My older brother had, had a rough story. Dad felt very justified in cutting it off. He said, Dad, I can't imagine. So he called my brother and they reconciled. He called his best friend from that time that I remembered when dad really did love Jesus and was connected to this wonderful church. And Bubba told me, he said, your dad told me that he felt lighter than he had ever felt in years. Two weeks later when my phone rang and I picked it up and the instant I heard my stepmother's voice, I, I, I don't know why, I don't know how, I knew exactly what the next sentence was going to be. That my dad had died of a massive heart attack in Texas. I went to um, do his funeral. And I got to tell that story. I'll be honest with you, you may not want me to do your funeral because I'm not one who's going to make everybody in, in the box behind me a saint. Because it's not helpful, it's not true. Nobody's that good. Why is everybody so great at the funeral? Like, you just hear nice things about the guy. It's not true. Like, this is not the time to be lying, people. Like, this is a precipice of eternity. Um, this is what I love about our faith. Is, I didn't, have, I didn't tell details or anything, but I said... I'm not going to tell you this guy behind me was the best dad. I'm not going to tell you he was a good dad. But I can't tell you when I learned his story, 
like has happened to me every time. It makes me mad when I want to be mad at somebody. And then I hear their story, and I am filled with compassion. But it doesn't change this. I don't, have to, I don't have to lie about this, that this hurt, made me angry, affected me. And I could also have unbelievable compassion and just deep, deep love for my dad. Because I know God will make this a good story over time. Anyhow, I got to tell that story of this prodigal son. Oh, it was beautiful. And all how it, it connected me to my dad. And I have that unbelievable memory. My life, I have n- never questioned the love of God. For anyone. I've never had a hard time, honestly. I don't think believing that God loves the person who unfriended me on Facebook. I, I, I can imagine God's unbelievable tender love for the worst human I could think of because I know in my heart I've thought something very similar at least. But I've never been able to trust that that story which is true was true for me. I believed it. I just couldn't trust it. Somewhere around that time, I have slowly begun to try to trust the story. It's, it's a crazy story. So now when I have that amygdala instinct, because I, my wife has said something or done something that makes me feel threatened, like I'm not going to be loved, I'm never going to be loved, and I begin to have that fight, it, and at least now sometimes, maybe at least by the next day, I'll go, oh gosh, sweetie, I'm so sorry. That had nothing to do. That had nothing to do with you or what you said. It had to do with this story, I believe, that I'm just never going to be loved. But I'm not going to trust that story anymore. I'm going to trust that it, in my worst moment, I'm no less loved. When I say this, please understand, I don't mean a consequence. But I'm going to say it this way. It does not matter what you do. Good or bad. To change how extravagantly the Father loves you. How many puppies he wants to give. How much forgiveness he wants to offer. Our story is so crazy. I can baptize the carpet here, and I don't even have to look up. Like right here, we can just see. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. If people are just listening, are they going to be very confused? Oh, my gosh. The water has come down, and we have water here. I tell you. 
It is now clean. Um, I was talking about God, wasn't I, somewhere? Anyhow. Um, it's, it's just so frightening to trust that story. It's so hard still for me to come even to a place like this and not want to do everything I can to make you like me. Because if I get good feedback, it makes me think maybe I'm loved. And to begin to go, God, help me trust that it won't matter. I'll do the best I can. I'm not that great. I'm okay. I think God gifted me. I, 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 wanna, I like it. But if it's just the worst sermon I ever gave, will not matter one iota. I'm loved. I am loved extravagantly by God. One, by God. One more thing. Sort of the proof or something about the uniqueness of what it means to follow Jesus. How much we have nothing to lose. We're, it's the only faith. It's, even to this day, nobody can get their head really around it. That Jesus says, listen, guys. I love you so much. You can love your enemies. No big deal. You don't need them. You don't need them to keep you safe. You don't need them. I love you. Love them. It's okay to love your enemies? Yeah. In fact, this is what will be the uniqueness it's sort of the, the way we can show the world how crazy extravagant is God's love. That even the person that unfriends me on Facebook, the one who embarrasses me at work, the dad who hurt me, I can love them. I can, I can sacrifice for them. Close your eyes for just a minute, if you don't mind. I'm going, to ask this, I'm going to ask the Spirit of God to help you for just a moment. Father, I, I would, by the power of your Spirit, ask you to, for my friends, bring one thing to mind, something clear for them that is hard for them, is it, a, is it their marriage or their parenting? Maybe something they've done and they've never told anybody. Or maybe they're sitting here and, and they're addicted. Maybe they're just tired of every day trying to get the people at work to like them. Lord, help them imagine what your extravagant love will mean and how it could heal that situation. Help them imagine that if they could only trust, if they could only trust that story. Oh, by the power of your spirit, like, like Paul prayed, oh God, we pray. And it can only happen by some miracle that you gift us with. 
Help us know how high and how wide and how long and how deep your love is. It will change everything for us, Father. Amen.